You are listening to the audio podcast of the weekly message preached at Central United Methodist Church in Arlington, Virginia. You're invited to worship with us in person on Saturdays at 4.30 p.m. or virtually through Zoom or Facebook on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. Visit us at www.cumcballston.org. There you can learn more about our congregation and how we worship God, serve others, and embrace all. The reading this morning is from Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17 of the Common English Bible. Therefore, as God's choice, holy and loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Be tolerant with each other, and if someone has a complaint against you, forgive each other. As the Lord forgave you, so also forgive each other. And all of these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The peace of Christ must control your hearts, a peace into which you were called in one body, and be thankful, people. The word of Christ must live in you richly. Teach and warn each other with all wisdom by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Whatever you do, whether in speech or action, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God the Father through him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So last night I was at a social event and the organizer asked if I would say grace before we began to eat dinner. When I say grace, it is usually a prayer of gratitude for the meal that we're about to share together and a prayer of gratitude for the gifts of all the people who helped to prepare that meal. When we use the word grace in English, we're using a word that has descended from a Latin word, gratia. This original Latin word also helped to create the words gracias and grazie, which means thank you in Spanish and Italian. Now, for those ancient Romans who were using the original word gratia, there were three different ways that they could use that word. The first, they could be using it to talk about a pleasing quality. Second, they could be talking about favor or goodwill. And finally, they could be giving thanks and expressing gratitude. Now, when we use the word grace in English and we're talking about it in theology, We usually define grace as the unmerited favor of God. So it's on that second definition of gratia. But in many ways, when we are talking about grace, it is about receiving the unmerited favor of God, and it is about then expressing gratitude to God for that favor. To be filled with God's grace is to be embodying a very pleasing quality. We often talk about grace in a physical sense, dancers who have grace and poise. But there is grace in a spiritual sense. And the letter to the church that Paul wrote to the Colossians tells us that we are to put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These are qualities that we would use to describe people who embody grace. Now, other translations will say not just to put on, but we are to clothe ourselves with these qualities. It would be easy to think 
that Paul is telling us we're supposed to put on something external, to wear a mask of Christian niceness, or to play dress up with holy things. But God longs for something much more than Christians to simply be nice. Paul is reminding us first of our identity as God's holy children. That's how he begins the very first sentence, as God's chosen holy and beloved ones. That is our identity inside. When we remember who we are as God's holy children, then people can see God's grace in us. But sometimes we do have to be intentional to remind ourselves because it is all too easy to forget about our identity as God's beloved children. It is too easy to forget about our journey toward holiness. John Wesley, who inspired the Methodist movement, expected that the people called Methodist would flee from sin and would seek holiness of heart. This spiritual journey is often referred to as being made perfect in love. So we believe as Methodists that God's people seek perfection. Now, this journey toward Christian perfection doesn't mean we won't ever make a mistake. It doesn't mean we get to be self-righteous. It simply means that we are in constant pursuit of forming and shaping our hearts and souls to be just like Jesus. When we pursue holiness of heart, I think it might even make it easier for us to notice when we have made a mistake when we have sinned against God or against a neighbor. As Methodists, we believe that humans can indeed be restored to perfection in the work of the Holy Spirit. Humans, when we're born into this broken world, we all experience the sin and brokenness in different ways. We all have stories about the way that sin has affected our lives, but we do not have to be stuck in that sin. We believe that grace frees us from this sin. Experiencing God's unmerited favor, that grace is what allows us to live differently in this world. And as Methodists, we often talk about encountering God's grace in three different and distinct ways. We first talk about provenient grace. The grace that goes before us and allows us the opportunity to say yes to God's love in our life. God's grace that is given to every single one of us that frees our will so that we are not trapped under the weight of sin. John Wesley wrote, God works in us, therefore humans can work. Provenient grace is according to is accorded to all. God works in you, therefore you must work. Provenient grace is what allows us to say yes, and because God is at work through provenient grace, we then can say yes to God. This is the experience of justifying grace. That moment when God declares us free from the punishment that sin brings. And from that moment on, we then live a lifetime of sanctifying grace. That lifelong journey of having God work in us to make our hearts and our souls even more holy. 
Now, some folks like to describe this understanding of grace using the image of a house. So I invite you to picture a house with a front porch. And on this front porch with that roof, we consider that roof to be provenient grace. It is the grace that protects the people who are not even inside of the house yet. This is the opportunity to stand and consider God's invitation. Do I want to enter this house or do I want to stand on the porch forever? That moment when someone decides to follow Jesus and they step through the household, that is justifying grace. That threshold of passing from the porch into the house is only a moment, but it changes your life. Because from then on, you move through that house from room to room, growing and learning and being changed and transformed for the rest of your life. God's grace is a gift to all of us. And when we choose to accept that invitation to enter the house of grace, we are not doing it under our own will. We are doing it because God has made it possible. And then when we enter that house and we move from room to room, we are not earning God's love. We are instead allowing God to work in us. And then we bear the fruit of the Spirit as a result of God in us. And so in this scripture to the letter at the church that Paul wrote to the Colossians, he's using this clothing metaphor to describe another way that we would see the fruit of the spirit that comes from following Christ. It is as though we are on the porch of provenient grace, and Paul says, leave behind those muddy boots. Leave behind that dirty raincoat. You don't need that anymore. Come into the house, and in this house, you will find new clothes that fit you better. You will find clothes that support you to work for God's goodness and grace in this life. This taking off and putting on the new is what Paul sees as the essence of following Jesus. Renouncing sin, renouncing the broken things in our life and turning away from that is what repentance is all about. And then we begin living for God, not for our own selves. When we step into that house of grace, we clothe ourselves with Christ's attributes of humility, of gentleness, of forgiveness, and love. When we consciously begin to wear these attributes, maybe we find at first they don't really fit. Maybe they feel a little too big, a little too constricting. They aren't really who we are on the inside. But if we stick with God's work in us, Slowly but surely, we will discover God changes our hearts. God softens them and makes them ready to fully embrace humility and gentleness and forgiveness and love. For Christ's goodness to fit us well, we must be willing to leave some things on that porch of provenient grace. And then as we enter the house, we work and let God work in us. For some, it is an absolute lifetime journey of struggle each and every day to remember that we are God's beloved children and God is at work in us. But when we keep our attention focused on what God is doing on the inside, it changes the way that we behave and we live in this world. Paul writes, let Christ's peace rule in your hearts. 
What began as an outward change becomes an inward change of the heart. The peace of Christ takes over the way that we think and the way that we behave. These Christ-like characteristics become part of who we are as followers of Christ. Theologian Kenneth Schetzel said, There is more than functional purpose for being clothed with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other, binding us to each other, such work is not for the faint of heart. This is not conflict avoidance advice. This is about what to do when bare-knuckled emotional brawls break out. Because they will. God's people are still people. And the question of how we live together in peace sometimes is very difficult for us to understand until we all seek after God's own heart. Reverend Richard War wrote this. Many folks over the years even very good-willed people, have read and listened to my presentations of the gospel, yet have actually done very little in terms of any lifestyle change, economic or political rearrangement, or even church reform. After all, church is just about believing ideas to be true or false, right? Religion is just about attending worship services, isn't it? They listen to my ideas. They judge them to be true or false. They either like them or they don't like them. But it never gets to any new practices or changes of patterns or habits. Transformative education is about asking you to believe or not believe. It's more about asking you to try this. That's exactly what Paul is writing about in his letter. He is asking people to try this. To try clothing yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Even when we disagree, embracing the love of Christ will keep us in harmony with one another. Paul goes on to say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is how we know that Paul's using this clothing metaphor not as a way to put on a mask, but he is saying, clothe ourselves in love so that Christ's word can dwell in us richly. And when Christ's word dwells in us richly, our lives bubble up with worship and praise, and we are filled to the brim with thanksgiving. Giving God thanks and praise is one thing that we do as a church that makes us different from any other social club that we can be part of. We recognize that we are not self-sufficient, but instead each of us is dependent upon God. And I love the tradition that Central has had about the opportunity to give our tithes and our offerings with a spirit of joy and thanksgiving and celebration. That moment in worship is a holy moment where we recognize that all we have in this life is a gift from God. And we give thanks to God for all of it, all of who we are and all that we have. And it is a joy to give a portion of that to invest in God's work. Two verses here focus on giving thanks on saying grace, on having gratitude in our hearts. 
As Paul reminds us to put off our old self and put on Christ, our hearts are transformed by having God's peace in us. And the response to God's peace is giving thanks. Our lives themselves become an act of worship. Worship is not just what we do when we gather as a group for an hour in one space. Our entire lives become an act of worship. So that everything that we say, we think, or we do is done in the name of Jesus and is done as an act of praise for what God has done. I recently heard another preacher tell me a story about a meeting between a Methodist church and their district superintendent. It was the time of year where that church had an opportunity to ask for a new pastor. And so the DS, the district superintendent, sat down with the church leaders to ask what they think the church needed in their new pastor. And the church said, well, we want someone who can attract young families. That made sense. The church had been in decline for a number of years, and many in the congregation were older, and so they wanted to have younger families. And the DS asked them, what is it about your church that young families would find attractive? And the leadership looked at each other, and then they looked at the floor. So the DS continued and said, well, what attracted you when you first came to this church? And one woman said, oh, it's, it's the fellowship. This is where I can see my friends every week. It's where we can catch up with one another. It's where I get a sense of belonging and where I formed my friendships. And the DS thought for a moment and said, yeah, that's true for many people. But these days, a lot of people under the age of 35 who have children get that very same sense of belonging and friendship at their kids' soccer game or other sports activities. They build friendships with parents of the other children involved in the activities that their children are part of. So those folks probably don't need church for fellowship. So tell me, what else attracted you to this church? One man said, well, church is where I get involved in helping other people. We work at a food pantry, we take meals to the homeless shelter, and I feel really good about being part of that. Medea said, yes, you're absolutely right. But these days, people under the age of 35 who want to do that often go straight to the homeless shelter or they go to a secular nonprofit to get that same sense of satisfaction. Medea asked them, so what else attracted you to this church? And the room was silent. Someone coughed. And it felt very awkward and tense. So the DS tried to encourage them to keep thinking and said, what's the one thing that this church has to offer that soccer teams and social agencies cannot? More awkward silence continued. And finally, the DS tried one more time and said, okay, look at it this way. What difference has being part of this church made to your faith? How has following Jesus Christ as a member of this congregation changed and changed and changed your life? One man grumbled in reply, hey, now you don't want to go there. That is much too personal. The DS answered, well, it's the one thing 
that sets this church apart from social groups and service clubs. The one thing the church can claim as its own that is distinct is Jesus Christ. And if you can't identify how Jesus has changed your life, what makes you think anyone else would be attracted to your church? The good news for us at Central is that we can talk about the difference Jesus has made in our lives. I have heard some of you talk about the testimonies of God freeing you from addiction and other sins that were pervasive in your life. I've talked about the way that this community has helped you find a new path towards a holiness of heart. And I have seen it in the way this congregation as a whole allowed God to lead them from their old building to tear the whole thing down. Too many churches would have been tied to the physical space that they had worshipped in for almost 100 years, but instead Central said, you know what, we're ready to go on this journey with Jesus. He is calling us to make space for new people and to make space for people to worship, to serve others, and a place where we can embrace all as a church. And more than that, a place where we can create affordable housing for people to live in our community. This is the testimony that each of us can offer about the way that Jesus has changed our lives individually and as a congregation. Now, we know that there are not as many people in worship, the ones who have gathered in person today or virtually, as we used to have even five years ago. It means that we're on par with many other churches because since 2001, in-person worship has declined significantly across all of the mainline denominations. When COVID hit in March of 2020, it rethought, what does it mean to go to church? And of course, now we're worshiping in person on Saturdays, which for many of us, we cannot keep the days of the week straight because of that. We think today feels like Sunday, and then tomorrow, what day is it? We've already been to church for the week. But we have an opportunity in six months when we go home again to our site in Boston, when we gather for worship on Easter Sunday, when it is an opportunity to proclaim that Jesus has overcome death and brought new life into this world, and Jesus has led us on this journey to transform our space to make a welcoming place for all. This is an opportunity for us to tell others how following Jesus makes a difference in our lives. Over the next six months, it's an opportunity for us to invite others into that journey with Jesus. Last night at that dinner where I was invited to say grace, one of the men at my table asked me about our building project. And he specifically wondered, what benefit does the church get from this? He asked if we would have some type of income stream or some other financial benefit from the project. I explained that the church actually had to contribute $4 million to fund the project so that it would be able to balance and it could actually be built. And we would not have a continued income stream from the development. And he was a little confused and he, he kept asking, so what, what benefit does the church get? And so I was able to tell him the story of our Friday morning ministry about inviting our guests to come for breakfast and how hearing their stories transformed the hearts of the people serving in our kitchen and how it helped the congregation hear God's call to create housing that didn't exist, to serve 
everyone who wants to live in Boston and can't afford to do so. I explained that this was our opportunity to live out our faith and to take a radical risk, but it was our chance to serve others in the name of Christ. This transformation of our property is a visible way that people can see how we as a church have been transformed by God pushing us to continue to worship with our whole lives, by serving others in the name of Jesus, and by creating a space of hospitality that will welcome and embrace all. So over these next six months, you'll have an opportunity to tell your story and your testimony. There will be people who will ask you questions or be curious about what is happening on our corner of Boston. And it's your opportunity to give the testimony of the difference that following Jesus has made in your life. And I pray that you will be able to talk about your encounter with God's grace so that you can embody Christ and allow Christ to live in you richly so that whatever you do, whether in speech or action, you may do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus and give thanks to God through him. Amen. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.